Welcome everyone to another episode of the Errant Fox Ship Private Company Strategies Podcast. Um, this podcast is hosted by myself, Bill D'Angelo, a corporate partner at Errant Fox Ship in the Los Angeles office, and my partner Adam Diedrich, who's a litigation partner in the Chicago office of Errant Fox Ship. We are joined today again with Kevin Matz, um, and uh, we had been discussing Hot Topics in Estate Planning for Owners of Private Companies. And this is part two of that podcast. So, Kevin, where do you want to kick off? I know that we had a really good discussion the last time. We got really into the depths of some of these questions. Um, what is what is the topic that you want to cover for today's podcast? Well, today we're going to have, built the ubiquitous topic that's going to really affect everyone in our world owners of interest in private companies, those companies themselves. And that is the Corporate Transparency Act. Okay. Um, coming to us come January 1, 2024, given that we have final regulations. So we're not there yet, but we're getting close to there, which means we need to warn our clients, quite often owners of interest in private companies, and, and like the, the private companies themselves they, and the reporting that will be needed, um, and make sure that this is focused on because it's something that is necessary uh, to be done and will be here soon enough come January So, 1 Kevin, what, for someone like myself or Adam that may not practice in your area, um, what is the Corporate Transparency Act? What is, how can we summarize what that is? Who, do, who does it affect? What are the, um, the regulatory uh, teeth in the, in the act? How does it affect uh, our clients? Well, I, I guess... The overview here is the U.S. is catching up to the rest of the world. I think that's the easiest way to frame it in terms of dealing with compliance with, with um, recommendations that have been provided over the past two decades uh, concerning combating international money laundering and, and to counter uh, terrorism and to use the tools as far as being able to collect information on those who are the beneficial owners those, if you look through various entities and you go up the link, up the chain of ownership, there's an individual somewhere. Mm -hmm. And whereas other countries throughout the world, for the most part, have been able to collect information and have enacted statutes and regulatory schemes to collect information, the United States, for the most part, by and large, has been way behind everyone else Interesting. Uh, until now, or at least until January 1, 2024 when the Corporate Transparency Act kicks in. Now, very importantly, it does not create a public registry of business entities. There's information that's available to the U.S. Department of Treasury, the Financial Crimes Network, FinCEN and the like. This is not going to be publicly available. There are serious penalties if one misuses it, uh, but it's something that we need to be mindful of and need to educate our clients on. So in terms of the core concepts here, again, this is all about collecting information that's designed to combat money laundering and terrorism. And think of it as anti-money laundering and also to combat terrorism and various means, including via so-called shell companies, to finance those efforts, again, catching the U.S. up to, to the rest of the world. So there are three key terms here, three key principles. Number one, you have to have the focus will be on what's the reporting company 
because it needs to disclose information about itself. And then that reporting company discloses not just information about itself, but also about who the company applicant is, who was involved in the creation of the entity. And then, and this is a broader term than, than how it might ordinarily sound, who the beneficial owners of, or beneficial owners are of, of such entity. And that all gets reported to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, goes by the acronym of FinCEN, of the U.S. Department of Treasury. Now, regarding beneficial owners and company applicants, what has to be disclosed? We're talking about full legal name, date of birth, okay? Uh, each beneficial owner's current residential address, you just can't do care of a law firm or accounting firm that that does work for you. You actually have to indicate the residential address and also each company applicant's current business address. So it's both residential and business and identification number. And it could be myriad things um, such as a driver's license or passport number, or very importantly, and this is going to become much more prominent as we get closer to the end of the year and we get further guidance, what will be known as a FinCEN identifier. Mm basically something that will be the identification number so that you don't have to share going forward after that social security number. You, you just get a fence and identify. Now, we don't have guidance as to, as to exactly how that is promulgated and how that gets collected, but it's been promised and it's going to be the linchpin in order to connect this because once it becomes available, we're going to want for our clients, for the private companies and the like, companies that are subject to, to these rules to get such information because it will simplify the, the reporting and consolidate everything into a single number as opposed to using driver's license IDs or social security number or anything like that. And again, the effective data for this is January 1, 2024. We're recording this on April 5th, so that's less than nine months away. So Kevin, I have uh, a question. Um, is there a threshold in terms of size for companies that have to register for this act? Or does it does it capture all foreign-owned businesses operating in the United States? Because if it's all, if it's everything, that's a huge land grab. It's everything, and it's even broader than what you stated. Subject to exceptions, we'll talk about exceptions shortly. But subject to exceptions, even broader than what you what you said, Bill, because it's not just foreign; it's also domestic. So, for estate planning purposes. Create entities, including family limited partnerships or family limited liability companies. It could also be single member disregard entities that are designed to own interest in real estate for the completely legitimate, laudable purpose of providing liability protection, this, this which seems, state law allows. Like an enormous burden on businesses and business owners. Uh, and is what, what if we have to do a filing for, like, walk me through. Of filing, let's say I own, like I actually do own a company with my family. Um, we're we're restructuring it. It's now going to be an LLC. What what would I have to do as a business owner? Like how much effort and work is this? Because the way you're describing it, it seems like extremely onerous. It unfortunately will be, and then the important aspect would be to get that Finston identify, identify number when it's available. But needless to say, I have clients work within their state planning that quite often have interest in literally hundreds 
of such companies. And each of the companies will be reporting companies unless they fall within the exceptions. We'll talk about the exceptions in a minute. But again, it's not just foreign. It's domestic as well. It's any company that that files with the Department of State or something similar to that to create it. Um, um, so we're, we're talking by filing a document, think in terms of articles of incorporation, certificate of formation, uh, or something that's equivalent in the context of limited uh, liability companies. You file with the Secretary of State or similar office and laws of a state or also an Indian tribe as well. Um, and that has to be, uh, that is that is ensnared here. It's subject to this reporting that will begin come January 1, 2024, subject to the exceptions that we'll talk about shortly. Uh, it also applies, it's not just domestic, it's also foreign. So if you have a, have, have it, an entity, think in terms of an LLC, uh, formed in laws of a foreign country that's registered to do business in the United States by filing a document with a secretary of state or similar office under the laws of the United States, or also an Indian tribe, that too gets ensnared. So we're talking here about LLCs. We're talking about limited partnerships. We're talking quite often about business trusts, statutory trusts that that as opposed to common law trust. Uh, Massachusetts, for example, has as as a uh, a business trust and like that similar entities they all get reported now what doesn't get reported and quite often for confidentiality and simplification purposes these will might become the defaults going forward so trusts themselves common law trusts unless it's a statutory basis to create it which uh, by virtue of a filing, the Secretary of State, usually not the case. I create a trust for estate planning, as I mentioned in, in the uh, part one of this session, uh, for one's spouse and children and grandchildren and the like. That does not get reported. Okay. Uh, also, general partnerships that don't involve a filing with the Department of State or Secretary of State or something similar does not get reported. So you'll probably find situations where instead of LLCs, those who those who are very mindful of this and want to maintain or enhance confidentiality and don't want to have to report, perhaps they'll have a general partnership created, but for liability protection purposes, they'll have trust created by other persons, uh, be the owners of the uh, to be the be the partners and that would completely avoid under the rules as written having to report but it's something to consider now there are exceptions not everything gets reported but the bottom line is you say well let's say I'm creating an, an LLC simply to own I'm creating it myself I want to buy real property but I want liability protection for a slip and fall or just to compartmentalize it and the like and own it through an LLC that will be reported now when does it not get reported basically. It doesn't get reported if it's something that's essentially so big in many instances that there's another reporting regime or scheme that already applies to it. So for example, there is an exception for large operating companies. And what's a large operating company? Regulations tell us if it has 20 or more full-time employees located in the United States, what's full-time? If I have a family member work five times a week, is that full-time? No, it's based upon 30 hours a week or 130 hours per month. And also, it's not just you say, well, why don't we just create that and have everyone on the payroll? You know, is that is that a way? Well, to get the benefit of that exception also, they have to have gross receipts of at least over $5 million. So it's not just so easy to fall, to fall into an engineer. You actually have to have an operating company that usually is going to have some other basis for 
for, for reporting to the U.S. Department of Treasury and basically have that information captured there. There are also exemptions for 501c tax exempt organizations, 527e1 political organizations, and also split into charitable trusts are likewise going to be exempted from reporting. But if if it doesn't fall within any of those categories, the family LLC that you created, including to buy real property or for tax planning, get assets to the other side of this so-called proverbial tax fence in conjunction with trust, even though the trust itself would not be reported, the LLC would be unless you fall within the benefit of exemption, which again, is going to be hard to obtain. So Kevin, are there, under the Corporate Transparency Act, um, you know, we've talked about what needs to be in a filing, who the who's exempt from it, um, and maybe I'm skipping ahead too far on this, but you know, tell me if I am. Um, what are the um, regulatory and um, you know governmental restrictions and penalties uh, if, in fact, you get sideways with the act after it's been enforced? Well, a couple things. Now, when if information is improperly leaked. There are penalties that can apply there. Um, the concern that arises, to be very frank, is sometimes those who would otherwise be inclined to leak it may not care about criminal penalties and the like. If you don't, now we could say, well, what if the client says to me, well, you know what? Uh, I don't want to report. You know, I understand you're telling me that I have a legal obligation. You know, what can happen? The question then becomes, well, how, does, how do you look at orange? Because you can get jail time. Really? It's not just civil fines. Yeah. For failure to report, you, you can get one can actually be sent to jail if it's if it's willful and you don't correct and you don't correct it, including if there's a change in information, you don't correct with a safe harbor period. Uh, you, you could actually have uh, up to I, I believe it is in, indeed two years uh, in jail. So the question is you could report. Or you could you could risk dressing in, in an orange jumpsuit for up to two I mean, years. I, I still, uh, I mean, I don't know, Adam, what your opinion is on this, but I mean, I just find this incredibly onerous. I know that there's exemptions for this. Um, I, I mean, is is there on the horizon, Kevin? Um, you know, pushback uh, on this act, or is there? Do you know of any entities that are threatening litigation once it goes live? Because this seems like an incredibly, I mean. It's one thing to create a civil infrastructure where you have to report and there's civil penalties, but for there to be actual criminal penalties, I'm wondering, I mean, I guess the first question is, is there pushback against this? And then I think the second question is, is do you think the reason for the criminal penalties has to do with the AML um, aspects to this? Or anti-terrorism? Well, the criminal penalties is basically to provide teeth. You know, in it, and to make sure that it that because there will be some who will say fines, you know, so what, you know, I'm rich enough to absorb that, and as long as it's all civil, it's not problematic. But the moment that you cross over into potential criminal penalties and actually have jail time, imprisonment up to two years here for failure to report, knowing willful failure to report. That, you know, just raises the ante. It's, again, it's the concern here is to get the U.S. on the same page as foreign countries. There was FATF for, um, going back to Financial Action Task Force going back about 20 years ago that made recommendations. Other countries have gone on board as far as that, as far as combating uh, money laundering 
and financing of terrorism through disclosure and the like. The United States has thus far resisted, and this is to bring the United States basically up to the rest of the world. Because right now, effectively, if if one were to to consider, you know, nefariously, how can there be less transparency from how you're structuring things, including money laundering, uh, for these these nefarious criminal efforts? So yeah, you know what? It's everything is balancing, and like, and a policy choice has been made. I expect one of the the primary concerns a business owner would have is confidentiality. Now you said that there's no public registry, but should a, should their clients should should business owners be concerned that this confidential information they're providing pursuant to the Corporate Transparency Act won't be protected, and how can they be assured that it that it will be protected? Well, it's supposed to be protected. It's supposed to be private. And and there are criminal penalties that are designed to to ensure that. Again, criminal penalties are designed to ensure that there's always a risk that someone will will say that, you know, they will go maverick or go rogue. Uh, so with the with rules provide final regulations, any any individual guilty of an authorized disclosure or use of beneficial owner information is liable for and, and subject to the followings. They're liable for civil penalty, $500 per day. The violation continues or is not remedied. And if found criminally liable, shall be fined up to $250,000 and potentially subject to imprisonment for five years or both. And that if it if violating another law in the United States in conjunction with that with illegal activity, uh, then you potentially have an increase in the criminal fine to five hundred thousand dollars or ten years imprisonment. So there are criminal penalties potentially involved ten years imprisonment that's in, involved if there's a bad actor who misuses on an unauthorized basis the beneficial owner information or other information that's provided. That's crazy. So I mean, I know we're trying to get through the entire act here. Kevin and, and Adam, that was a really good question on confidentiality. Um, you know, but looking at our outline, uh, I'm curious who who is a company applicant under the Act? How do we how does a how do we advise our clients in terms of who needs to make the application and what information they have to deliver? Yeah, so a company applicant that gets reported by the reporting company, again, the reporting company would be the LLC, limited partnership corporation that does fall, doesn't fall within the exemptions, is any of the following. So it's individual who directly files a document to create a domestic reporting company, uh, say to create the LLC in the state of Delaware or New York or California or Illinois or elsewhere. Uh, It also can include an individual who directly files the first document registering a foreign reporting company. In addition to that, a company applicant can also include an individual primarily responsible for directing such filings. So think in terms of a law firm or an accounting firm, and there's, say, a a partner at a law firm says, okay, you know, let's utilize one of the corporation service companies to, to, to actually file the document to create an LLC. That person would be a company applicant. Now, you may say, "What? Well, hold on a second. What about everyone? What if there's not just the partner there, but also an associate and a paralegal and other people in clerical functions? Are they all company applicants? And that was actually one of the issues in the proposed regulations that received comments on. Fortunately, the final regulations say, you know, we're just going to cut it off at two. 
So basically, whoever is actually filing to create it, think in terms of potentially a could be a, a corporation service company uh, and like, and then also one person who provides the, the command, think in terms of pot- potentially a partner in a law firm. Uh, and also very importantly, proposed regulations. Again, we had proposed regulations and we had final regulations that came out last year. Proposed regulations would say, well, you look back from the beginning right. of time. So you're going to have entities created in the 1960s, 1970s, and you still have to figure out who the company applicant is, although how are you going to do that? Fortunately, the final regulations say we're going to have a clean slate. We're only going to apply this as far as reporting company applicants for reporting companies that are formed or registered after January 1, 2024. So that's company applicant. Very. The next important concept I want to mention is Who's the beneficial right. owner? Now, beneficial owner seems to imply, well, someone in the chain of ownership who has some sort of ownership interest directly or indirectly. That would be a good guess as far as the supposition of what the rules are intended, but they're actually broader than that because quite often they, they can embrace someone who doesn't, doesn't necessarily have an ownership interest, direct or indirect, but is able to exercise what's defined in the regulations as substantial control. So just to dig into that a little bit. So a beneficial owner is defined as an individual who directly or indirectly through any contract, arrangement, understanding, relationship, or otherwise. Uh, what does otherwise mean? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. We don't know. Um, does one or two things. So number one, exercise substantial control over the entity. You may ask, ask what substantial control is. We'll get to that in a moment. Or, so it's one or the other owns or controls, we'll talk about that in a second, at least 25% of the ownership interests of the entity. So a beneficial owner, again, individual who directly or indirectly through any contract, arrangement, understanding, relationship or otherwise, does one or two things. One, exercise substantial control over the entity, or two, owns or controls at least 25% of the ownership interest of the entity. Now, just to dig down a little bit on that substantial control, who exercises substantial control? Again, that's one of the two tickets for beneficial owner, even if you don't have an ownership interest. A senior officer is considered to be able to exercise substantial control. What's the senior officer? Reg- final regulations say it includes the president, CFO, general counsel. General counsel. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, CEO, COO, so chief executive officer, chief operating officer, or anyone performs a similar function. Think it, presumably that includes a manager or managing member of an LLC too. It also includes someone who's the authority to appoint or remove any senior officer. So what if members of an LLC have the ability to fire, remove, and replace someone? They would seem to be ensnared within having substantial control on that basis. Someone also has the authority to appoint or remove a majority of the board of directors or equivalent. So that, you know, again, we could be talking about, about folks who you want to think have substantial control, but because they can fire someone and replace them, remove and replace, that could be a trigger here. And also those who can direct, determine, or have a substantial influence, quote unquote, over important decisions, what are important decisions? Talk about that in a second. Made by the reporting company. Now, an important decision, pretty, pretty broad. Are things important? Are they not important? Well, this is what this is what Treasury regulations say. Vincent's Treasury regulations say that they consider important. Sale, lease, mortgage, or transfer of a principal asset. 
reorganability to participate in reorganization, dissolution, and merger decisions. Ability to participate in, in major decisions concerning major expenditures, investments, or issues of equity or debt. Selection of business lines or geographic focus. That's pretty broad. Setting compensation for, for senior officers. Editing significant contracts. What's a significant contract? I don't know, but you always want to err on the side of being conservative here, right? Or the ability to amend governing documents. Now, so that is substantial control. About the ownership interest, it's a, you know, focus there is on who's a 25% owner, 25% ownership interest. Again, direct or indirect. So it's defined very, very broadly and extensively here. It just doesn't include equity interest, as one would think in terms of in a corporation, 25% interest in the corporate stock or 25% LLC membership interest in, 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 in an LLC. It could also include uh, profit sharing arrangements. So I would think having a profits interest in an LLC that, that rises level 25%, that could be a trigger here for having to be someone who's a deemed beneficial owner who has to be reported by the reporting right. company, uh, voting right. trust, convertible debt. So even if you haven't converted it because it is convertible, uh, and also options. That's intra- very interesting here. Someone has the ability to exercise options to acquire equity interest. That that ability to exercise would seem to, in, to put them in the category of perhaps being a deemed beneficial owner that has to uh, Kevin, has to a question uh, about that. So... Are you saying that someone who doesn't otherwise already own an equity interest who just has a contingent right to exercise an equity interest could be a beneficial owner under this? I mean, that does that seems to be very onerous because uh, option holders are, are contingent owners. They have no control. They have no voting. Um, it, it, how, how is this? What's the logic behind this, in your opinion? So the question is... Who's considered a beneficial owner? Is it A, the trustee? Is it B, a beneficiary whose ability to withdraw? C, a beneficiary or maybe a grantor of a trust who can revoke it? Uh, is it somehow broader than that? Well, the answer is it's really, really broad, potentially all of the above. I guess that would be that would be choice D if we were making this a multiple choice question. So trust assets for purposes of considering who the beneficial ownership can be attributed to the trustee or other individual with authority to dispose of the assets that they would be covered. Um, I, I mentioned in, in, in the part one of, of the uh, of the of hot topics in the state planning for uh, owners of, of, of interest in private companies and the like, that you could have this swap power. Well, that would seem to be something if it's as to an, an, an interest in an entity that has to be reported, that would seem to be captured here. Um, a beneficiary who is the sole income and principal beneficiary, if they have up to 25% or more, uh, they would be reported as a deemed beneficial owner. A beneficiary whose ability to demand or withdraw the assets or substantially all of the trust assets was substantially all, we don't know. But again, you probably want to err on the side of being conservative here. Uh, that would be someone who would be reported as a, as, as a quote-unquote beneficial owner. And also a grantor of a trust, if the trust happens to be revocable, or they otherwise have the ability to withdraw the trust assets regardless of form, that would also ensnare someone who has the ability to swap in and swap out assets. They would all be reported there. An important question, I guess. So I mentioned January 1, 2024. 
when exactly is everything here due? And here it matters greatly. Is it an existing reporting company um, or is it new? And if you're existing, you get a big, big break by year. So existing reporting companies, even though CTA, Corporate Transparency Act, goes live January 1, 2024, if you're an existing company and you're not making changes uh, to it that somehow ensnare the rules, get you ensnared by the rules, you have a year after that, so January 1, 2025. So you have an existing single-member LLC or family LLC that's set up, or small company, private company, and the like, you don't fall within any exemptions. Do I have to report January 1, 2024? The answer is if it's existing, if it's on the books by December 31, 2023, which means maybe get it done by December 31, 2023, if you want to create something new, you don't have to report till January 1, 2025. But if it's already something that was formed, if it's domestic and was formed by January 1, 2024, it has to be reported within 30 days afterwards. Uh, so uh, that's 30 days after January 1, 2024. Uh, uh, for after it, uh, it's it's thirty calendar days. If it's something, I'm sorry. If it's if it's formed January 1, 2024 or afterwards. So something that's new. If it's domestic, uh, you have thirty days to report it. So the key is to form it December 31, 2023, not January 1, 2024, because you'd have to then report it thirty days afterwards, January 31, 2024. Uh, same. Principles apply to foreign reporting companies. So if it's registered January 1, 2024 or afterwards, again, you have 30 calendar days uh, to, to, to actually go ahead and report it. And then the rules say, well, is it static? Do you report and you're done? You know, we wish, right? Unfortunately, that's not the case. There's also need for updated reports. So if you already have a change to informa- have a change to information previously reported to FinCEN, so let's say you have an entity that come January 1, 2025, it's existing now, it then gets reported, and then you have a, have, have a change. And we'll talk about what those changes could be. You then have 30 calendar days from then to file an updated report with Vincent. So those changes that could trigger that, again, if it's, if it's something that's existing as of now, you don't have to worry about it until 2025. But if it's something that you're forming January 1, 2024, you then have... 30 days after after the change to then have an updated report. And they include a change in who the beneficial owners of. So think in terms of a transfer of interest. It could even be, I would think, by a distribution from trust A to trust B under the terms of a trust document or a will. A minor attaining age majority. So if, if by virtue of attaining age majority, uh, age majority, and that would look at local law, uh, the particular state, is it, whether it's 18 or 21 or some other age, uh, that could be a trigger for having that child then reported. Information related to a beneficial owner, such as a change of address so uh, or a change in, in, in uh, potentially driver's license number, if that's, if that's used. Uh, but a change in residential address, someone moves and they've already had reporting occur in the first instance, either because it's a new company formed on or after January 1, 2024, or an existing company and the trigger date of January 1, 2025 for old and cold companies that happens. Someone moves that has and is a beneficial owner that has to be reported. If it any becomes exempt from reporting or is no longer exempt, that too gets reported. And also, if a beneficial owner dies, or cha- uh, in that case, if an estate is so-called settled, 
What does settled mean? We don't know. The rules don't tell us what they mean. But if the state is settled, uh, that's an undefined term, then you have reporting there. Now, what about if there's a need to correct a report? So if the reporting company, against a reporting company that has reporting obligation, the reporting company becomes aware or is reason to know, what does that mean? <laughs> Define. We don't know. Uh, that information contained in the report is inaccurate. They'd have 30 days from the date to file a corrected report. Now, what if you don't? Or what if, and we talked about this earlier, what if someone, despite the good advice and valid advice that they're receiving from counsel and other advisors, they say, well, you know, I, I don't want to comply. That is, that is not something that you can do because there are penalties. So an individual, and the penalties can include criminal penalties, as mentioned before. So an individual who willfully provides false or fraudulent information or willfully fails to report complete or updated beneficial ownership information faces, uh, they have a civil penalty of up to $500 a day, violation continues or is not remedied, and a criminal fine of up to $10,000 and or two years of imprisonment. So that usually gets the attention of clients uh, and folks I'm speaking with. It's not just a matter of monetary penalties, slaps on the wrist. You can actually be prosecuted, indicted, convicted, and serve up to two years of time. Now, there is a 90-day safe harbor that's built in. If an individual voluntarily submits a report containing correct information where something was, was incorrect, but this is something to be taken very, very seriously. And Kevin, is the fraud. obligation imposed on the, each beneficial owner uh, and, and the company. potential penalty, or is the obligation imposed on the reporting company or the company applicant? Because I'm thinking of a scenario where we, we have clients with multiple owners and they don't always get along. What happens when some of the beneficial owners don't provide, say, their current address or the identities of their, their, their new trustees uh, to the company so the company can file the correct information? Well, Adam, those are scary questions that are not yet defined. And presumably, where there are entities, there should be LLC operating agreements and the like for LLCs that actually deal with this because the obligation to report is on the reporting company. But you don't want to be um, – one does not want to find themselves staring against an indictment that says that it was a willful non-reporting caused by person X who, who was a substan- had substantial control over the filing obligations reporting company. You want to have a we want to have a situation that in our LLC operating agreements and governing documents for entities, you know, shareholder agreements and like partnership agreements, limited partnership agreements, uh, we specify this and make very clear that there's going to be reporting and this information needs to be provided in order to comply with the law. So it would be wise for owners of, of privately owned companies to update their operating agreements, update their governing documents to require all of the relevant people, the potential beneficial owners, to provide the information to the company so the company can provide the information to the Treasury Department. Is that right? Absolutely. Kevin, what is what would you say is the biggest takeaway on, the, on this discussion of the Corporate Transparency Act um, for practitioners, specifically, you know, like Adam and myself, who represent clients on a day-to-day basis, what's what's the big takeaway? Is it to get educated as quickly as possible? Um, 
What do you think it is? Well, I think that's precisely it, Bill. To be aware of it, be aware that it's coming for new entities come January 1, 2024, that it ensnares existing entities, although on a slightly delayed basis, but it's coming soon. It's not. It's something that our clients need to know about. They need to be educated, which means we as practitioners need to be educated to in turn educate them. And it's not something that okay. can be avoided. It's, it's, it's going to be here. We're going to be brought up to basically on par with the rest of the world in taking proactive steps to combat money laundering and, and financing. Well, this has been really enlightening for me, Kevin. I know that I'll want to follow up with you uh, after the podcast to talk about, you know, how we best educate our clients uh, on an individual basis and also on a firm basis. Adam, did you have any closing uh, remarks or ideas? There are so many questions spinning through my mind right now, but that's probably a, a subject for a, another podcast if we wanted to get into further detail on the Corporate Transparency Act once it once it's yeah. actually rolled out, once it becomes active. Great. Well, I, I think, think this so. is a good place for us to so. stop. Kevin, it's been great having you on two consecutive podcasts. We look to see you more in the future. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, on this episode.